As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. I know what's going to happen. And I know that, you know, a broker telling me that you can raise rents and you can do this and you can do that. Well, why didn't the last guy do that? Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guest, I want to mention Fund That Flip because Fund That Flip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on uh, or the main two things are the deal and the money. Uh, So if you've got the deal pipeline but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, a, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Uh, the, the founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. familiarize yourself with Matt and um, what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flip's the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, So go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless and... This show is all about getting your best advice ever with none of the fluff. We get straight to the actionable insights that move your real estate investing business forward, help you make more money, and hopefully a little bit less time uh, and enjoy the process a little bit more. We've interviewed Robert Kiyosaki from Rich Dad Poor Dad, Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, and many other successful investors. And now we've got Serge Shukat. How are you doing, Serge? Doing great. Thanks, Joe. Nice to have you on the show, and Serge is joining us from Phoenix, Arizona, where he is focused on mid-size multifamily investing, so mid-size being 50 to 100 units, and single-family homes in his local market of Phoenix. He also does property management, and he currently owns and manages over 100 units, non-real estate related. He actually spent two years living and working in Moscow. 
So with that being said, sir, do you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? Yeah, yeah. I am uh, originally from the corporate world. Um, I am a California CPA and originally from the Bay Area. Um, I started at a, a large, uh, one of the big four public accounting firms, and uh, that's where I did my uh, international overseas time working with them. And uh, come early 2000s, uh, I transitioned to one of my clients at the time, which was a tech firm in the Silicon Valley. Uh, they hired me to be their controller. Um, we grew that business fairly quickly over the next five years. We purchased a small technology company in Arizona um, around um, early 2000s. Come 2007, 2008, we were having a lot of problems with that company at the time. And uh, I got sent over there to help sort things out and uh, became what became a short-term trip turned into a long-term living arrangement in Arizona, in, in suburb of Phoenix. Uh, I liked it. I stayed there. Um, and come 2009, when the economy came screeching to a halt and real estate was uh, on sale, um, I started crunching the numbers and looking at real estate and bought my first SFR at that time, which would have been uh, December 2008, January 2009, and uh, gave it a shot as a landlord. Uh, the numbers worked out well and have been growing ever since was lucky enough to grow the business to replace my corporate income by around 2012, and uh, which also happened to be the time we sold that company uh, to a large public company. And that was my cue to go into real estate full time. And I've been buying small multifamily, medium-sized multifamily, and single family ever since. With the properties you said you've got, you own and manage over 100 units, right? Correct. When you look at the income that replaced your full-time job, income as a CPA, what percentage of the most profitable or the what percentage of the money that is directly uh, responsible for paying you the most is that of your overall percentage? And I don't know if I asked that the right way. Basically, how large is the largest percentage of the, uh, the amount of money from the properties that you have? Well, to be clear, the, the real estate business didn't kick off any cash flow for a good three years. It was a, you know, buying foreclosures and, and the properties that needed rehab, it would be all, all, all rental income would go directly towards the next house and, and, and reinvestment and buying the next house and remodeling the next house and, and working through the kinks. So it took, it took quite a while to get settled. Um, today, a big portion, my income is diversified quite a bit. Um, I have some notes that I originated. Um, so I had a, a 32 unit single family, uh, 32 unit multifamily property, which I purchased in 2010 and rehabbed over the next couple of years and sold last year on owner financing. So there's a, a sizable note income. Also have the, the property management income. Uh, so we're not a large property manage, manager that advertises all around the United States. We work with a couple of California investors that are good friends of mine, uh, helping them on some of the turnkey properties that we sold them, as well as capital gains. So it, it's a mix between note income, rental income, and capital gains generally. As far as the biggest percentage, the rental income is going to be the biggest percentage because the mix, uh, we're, we're not very highly leveraged, right? So it's not a $100 per property business plan. It's uh, owning as many homes outright and having mortgages on just the homes that that are going to be 
you know, the highest quality long-term holds with 30-year paper to pay off over time that then finance newer homes to own outright. So it's all about the goal from all, you know, from the beginning wasn't to own the most units. It was to maximize cash flow while owning the minimal amount of units. Interesting. Maximize cash flow while owning the least or minimal amount of units. What are your thoughts on you know the tax advantages that you have? Because some people might say, well, you're able to write off the interest rate and you have a lot of more tax advantages. And well, hell, you're a CPA, so this is gonna be perfect. You have you have a lot more tax advantages whenever you have a mortgage. Is that not enough to consider having the the mortgage? Where I mean, clearly in your case, you're looking to pay them off. Yeah, well, this is an interesting topic, right? So clearly there is major tax advantages to uh, to rental income. I have this conversation with a, a lot of my investor friends that we talk about on Bigger Pockets, and, and the goal the goal here is this. The goal is you live off of your Schedule E income, okay? You earn off of your Schedule C income, and you avoid W-2 income, right? You ask the question of how much, what percentage of my income did it take or whatnot to replace my W-2 income. Well, it, it's it's surprisingly not that much because what happens is you got to earn. When you look at your earnings off of your Schedule E income, which is going to be your rental income, right? You can earn 50% of your W-2 income because there's nowhere to hide with the W-2 income, right? You're, you're going to pay through your nose no matter what. You're going to phase out on any deductions that are worthy. There's nowhere to hide, right? Even if you mix between W-2 and passive income, which is clearly hard to do, um, it's, it's, it's troublesome. So the question as far as, you know, where do you uh, – uh, getting mortgages for the sake of the interest deduction? Well, I'll say that uh, – I'm happy paying taxes on Schedule E income if there is income to begin with. The interest deduction is just gravy, right? So it's all a question of where can you use, can you beat the interest rate that you're paying, right? Everything has a cost. So if your deduction, you know, depending on your, your rate or whatnot, there's there's a million different ways to skin it. But uh, getting debt for the sake of debt or to show that you have infinite returns or whatever it may be, that's not the reason I use debt, right? I use debt if I can arbitrage that debt. If I can take that debt that I'm paying 6% on and I can buy property that I'm making 10% on, that's great, right? My income off of real estate is already tax hedged because of the depreciation. The interest uh, deduction means that generally I won't be paying tax on that uh, that property, right? Well, I'm already not paying tax on generally my first 10% return. That's good enough for me, right? So if I'm going to take debt, uh, I don't necessarily look at it like I'm doing it to maximize my deductions or, or lower my tax bracket necessarily. I'm looking at it more of can I put that debt to use? Because again, this isn't my strategy has never been a no money down strategy or own as many properties or, or you know own 200 properties cash flowing $75 a door. That doesn't do it for me. I'm trying to maximize buy quality property that can maximize cash flow per property to the point where I can have the income I need to live with the minimal amount of property, right? Because it, it has to be manageable at the end of the day. You said live off Schedule E, avoid W-2 income. And what was the other one? And earn from Schedule C. Will you explain that? So what you do is your business income is going to be your best source of income, right? People become wealthy in this country by creating businesses, selling businesses, uh, whatever whatever it may be, right? So 
I'm not going to sit here and say what business to start or run. And if you're in real estate, it could be a million different things. So an example of a real estate investor who diversifies his income, right? He makes his rental income off of his Schedule E, okay? His Schedule C will have property management income. It'll have real estate if you're an agent, real estate agent, agency income. Um, it'll have uh, – Maybe you're a guru and you sell, you know, knowledge, right? You sell books or you write books, whatever it may be, that's going to be your business income. So what you want to do is you create cash flow, you create cash sustainable, long-term cash flow from these businesses that then funnel that money into real estate that then funnels income back to you through your schedule E, right? And that's how you get off of the, the whole entire W-2 train, uh, which in essence, you're paying the highest rate of tax on your income, right? Because you're paying FICA before it even touches you, right? Social Security and Medicare before it even gets to you, you're paying your payroll tax. And then on top of that, you're paying uh, whatever bracket you're in, but you're, you're limited on what you can deduct from that income. There's just, there's just only so much you can do. And then when you become a high income earner, there's almost nothing you can do. You can't deduct passive losses. You can't deduct, you can't deduct anything. So you're going to pay any way you slice it if you're earning via W-2. So if you can control it, I always advise, look outside, think outside the W-2 box. You mentioned profit per unit that you don't want. What is the profit per unit that you do want? And then what are you making on average per unit cash flow? You know what? Um, I've transitioned on the single family uh, homes. I'm looking for homes that rent over $1,000. Okay. And what I'm looking for today is much different than what I was looking for, you know, maybe three or four years ago. So today I'm buying homes in the seventy dollars to $90,000 range. Uh, they're going to rent for between $950 and $1,200. Okay. I'm going to hope or try to get them in non-HOA communities so I don't have the $50 to $100 off the top. Our taxes and insurance is very, very cheap in Arizona. So I'm paying somewhere in the ballpark of $200 to $300 maximum per year for insurance and another $700 for taxes. So $1,000 a year per home on taxes and insurance. So that's about 100 bucks a month. So I'm hoping before my CapEx and repairs to have 900, well, let's call it 850 to uh, 1,000 left, okay? And then my repairs and, and uh, CapEx and maintenance, that's going to cut in because I'm self-managing and I have repair staff and I have the infrastructure to manage it. And my homes are all in, in specific regions. That's going to run about 1,000 to $1,500 a year. And so I'm hoping at the end of the day to look at uh, a good six to $7,000 a year per home in income before depreciation. And what about the multifamily? The multifamily, I'm very happy at $200 a door. Okay. Uh, the bigger question on multifamily is, does that exist at $200 a door? And that's, and that's again, so that's $200 a door after debt, after the use of leverage. Yeah. That's put it in your pocket and, and go to the store. That's right. That's right. So, so generally what I look for on the small multifamily, my hard rule of thumb is I don't want anything where my average rents are lower than $600. I draw a very hard line at $600. I don't want the tenant class that's paying $495 for rent. Um, I don't want the tenant class that's jumping around from move-in special to move-in special that, uh, you simply have no options as far as screenings concerned because I mean it's it's very easy to sit there and say you know only accept people with three times income and uh, have this screening criteria, 
But uh, guess what? If you're in Class D in a Class D neighborhood, you're not going to get applications for tenants that make three times income and tenants that have been at the same job for two years because they don't want to be at your Class D property. So you're, you know, if you're going to maintain a 95% occupancy, you're going to be dealing with the Class D tenants. There's no way around that. So and it doesn't matter what money you put into it. I've been there. I've done that. And it's a vicious, what I call a CapEx cycle where you get that tenant in place. Maybe they pay you their deposit, but they're gone within 90 days. Uh, they've destroyed your, your last remodel and every penny you've collected in rent times two is going right back into turning around that unit and getting the next body in there. And that cycle is just 20 to 40% of your tenants are going to be constantly revolving through that cycle. And when it's all said and done, it doesn't matter how cheap you bought that property. There's simply no profit left. There's no profit left on that. And so you got to be very, very wary of those class D, class C projects. I like the mid-80s, late-80s type project with newer infrastructure, newer plumbing, quality construction. I'm not concerned about cap rate. Uh, you had a guest on your show, Brian Burke, a while ago who made some very, very interesting comments on cap rate, how you know there's four or five different ways to calculate it. It's very irrelevant of what the broker is telling you is the cap rate going in. I want to know the cap, what my exit cap rate is going to be when I go to sell the property, right? And generally, so if I'm buying something, something I, I like, the last project I bought, I can give you an example, is a 56 unit. I paid $37,000 per door. Um, there was quite a bit of value add on that project um, with uh, the utilities, billing back tenants with uh, chances on expenses and, and, and raising rents, uh, getting rents to market. They were about $70 per unit below market. So when I bought it, the last owner's average rents were $600, uh, but I knew the market could sustain about $685. Um, I paid $37,000 a door, um, and that's about generally what I look for. You know, Get as close to that 2% rule where if I'm paying $50,000 a door, I'm going to need a good $800 to $900 average rents. You know? And you try telling this to brokers and they'll laugh at you today and they'll say, you know, $50,000 a door, you're lucky to get five, $600 rent. Well, that's not a project I know I can cash flow that I know I can carry my debt, right? I just know. I know those numbers. I'm intimate enough with those numbers where I know what's going to happen. And I know that, you know, a broker telling me that you can raise rents and you can do this and you can do that. Well, why didn't the last guy do that? Yeah. Yep. You know? It's the I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pay a capitalized value of something that can be done that the last guy couldn't do. You mentioned you're not concerned about cap rates going in. How do you determine the offer you should make if you're not using cap rates? Strictly on my own underwriting, right, and my internal rate of return that I'm that I'm targeting. Okay, so I underwrite a little bit different than a syndication model. A syndication model may need a large uh, rate of return in order for them to be paid, for the syndicator, the sponsor to be paid as well on the front, and for everybody to win. I self manage, and I have a lot of uh, scale in my in my in my operational infrastructure as long as the property is in my geographic region. So I can compete on expenses. What I want first and foremost is I want to know that I have a project that has stability, right? Stability in the tenant class. So the first thing, the absolute first thing is, is, is if it doesn't have the tenant class that I'm seeking, I move on to the next, okay? Then I compare the actual cap rate based on 12 months, 24 months of the last owner actually operating it. 
and I'm willing to pay a cap rate on their actuals, right? On what they actually did, not what they could do, not what the broker is saying pro forma on what they did. And then I, and then I create my own pro forma that says, here's what I know expenses are going to be based on industry average. You know, I know that I'm going to need about a thousand dollars per door in payroll, right? I know that I'm going to need a, a $400 per door for CapEx. I know what I'm going to need per door uh, for – and irrelevant of what the broker tells me on the pro forma, I come up with my net operating income and I say, what is that going to look like in year one? What is that going to look like in year two? And what is that going to look like in year five? And what cap rate am I going to have to exit this thing at in year five? And that's going to be driven by where you think the market's going to be and, and where you think you can drive net operating income over those five years, right? Yeah. When you look at that, when you look at year five, is your goal to sell it at that point? You know, I underwrite it as if I'm going to need to sell it. I'm going to want to sell it because my number one criteria in these projects is not to get hurt, right? There's These are significant projects. You're talking about on, a, on the 56 unit, the, the strike price going in was a little over $2 million, um, you know, which that a project like that requires about half a million dollars down. So you're talking about big money. Right. And these loans are commercial loans. So uh, in mine, for example, was a 10 year, a 30 year amortization, 10 year balloon. Right. So you you've got to know that you have an exit well in advance of year 10. I'm not looking at year nine and a half. All of a sudden the market changes and there's not a lot of financing for this class of product. Right. It's happened before. You just don't know what it is. So you got to get in at the right price on the front end, and you've got to be able to underwrite a high enough cap rate at the back end that discounts to interest rates going up, right? If interest rates at year five are 8%, no one's going to buy your building at a six and a half cap like they might today, right? So you've got to take all of that into consideration, and you've got to be very realistic of where your net operating income is going to fall at that year. So I use the five-year horizon to say, what is my capitalized value most likely going to be at year five, which is going to give me a clear-cut exit and how much money I can make if I choose to sell it. And that, in turn, is going to be a big component that's going to drive my internal rate of return. Because what a lot of people don't realize is large multifamily isn't really a cash flow game, right? It's not really, you don't really go into it thinking you're going to have cash flows for life. It's just, it's not a dividend. It's not a bond. It's not stable over the long run. At the end of the day, you got to realize that you're going to have a depreciating asset in most markets, right? Uh, perhaps in the Bay Area or in New York where you have limited supply land, you know, things get better over time. In my market, in Arizona and in the Midwest, these buildings are getting older. Uh, there's a lot of new construction going up. There's a lot of competition. Uh, you, you've got to assume your building gets older and you've got to assume that uh, you know you, there's not a lot of scarcity in that market, right? So you've got to bank on net operating income and what somebody's going to pay on a function of that net operating income and nothing else. Not scarcity, not that the market's going to be hot, nothing else. So, so yeah, so I look at I look at what he's offering the cap, and it might be a project that the pro forma says it's a six cap. But if I know it's a six cap or a five cap on actuals, and I know the actuals are underperforming, and, I, and I'm very intimate with the market, and I know what it could be doing, I'm fine buying it. For a five, I'm fine buying it at a zero cap. Serge, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? 
My best real estate investing advice ever is start with your tenant and work up from there. Figure out who who you are going to service, who is going to be your customer, your client, and and let your purchases go off of that instead of opposite. Instead of figuring out what house is going to be the best ROI or what house is going to be this or what city or what state am I going to go into, start with the tenant and work up from there. With your single family homes, who's your tenant? My tenant is a teacher. My tenant is a, uh, a husband and wife uh, who are between uh, getting their repairing their credit, getting it uh, better so that they can buy a house in three years. My tenant is worried about me digging their credit. Uh, my my tenant is concerned about paying a late fee. My tenant is trying to do the right thing, trying to be responsible. Hopefully, right? Doesn't always work out that way, unfortunately. But that's my profile. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. What's the best ever book you've read? Best ever book I read was... The Tax Code. Tax code. <laughs> Leave it at that. Sorry, I wasn't prepared for, for your, your lightning round. Let's keep going. All right. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? That growth experience was, geez, you're killing me here. Are we talking real estate related? Just in life or real estate, whatever, however you want to take it. Best personal growth experience was 22 years old, being dropped off in a foreign country, not knowing anybody, thrown to the wolves on your own. That was my best What'd you learn from it? I learned how to not rely on anybody, not have a friend, not have a parent, not have anybody to call and just make it on your own. What's the best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I did was buying a distressed multifamily off of a gentleman on a deathbed for $5,000 a door. And what'd you do with it and how'd that turn out? I spent years remodeling it, rehabbing it, getting it stacked, and I sold it and uh, 1031 into a larger project. How many units? How many units was that? Uh, the 5K a door. The 5K a door was 45 units. 45 units, and what did you sell it for, for per door? I sold it for 36000 a door. And how much per door do you think you put into it? Uh, about 7500 Wow, that's a good spread. Well, how much time did it take you? It took me two years. Wow, congrats on that deal. Yeah. Best ever way you like to give back? Through bigger pockets, through answering people's forums, through mentoring. What would you say is the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Biggest mistake I made was splitting up a fourplex and selling two of the units to a friend at the time. Don't sell to friends. Is that the is that the lesson, or is it is the lesson splitting it up, not splitting it up? Don't split it up. A continuous building. Okay. And what's the best ever place for the listeners to reach you? Online. I'm on Bigger Pockets. Uh, email. Email. It'll be on your uh, on your site, right? Yeah, yeah. What's your email? Arizona650 at gmail.com. Arizona650 at gmail.com. And your book, Best Ever Read, The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand. Oh, there you go. You've been thinking about it, huh? There you go, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, this has been wonderful because you think differently. You really do. Uh, this is a different type of conversation than I usually have with guests because I've never heard of the philosophy and it makes so much sense to maximize the cash while owning the least amount of properties, the least amount of units. Usually we want to do like a land grab or a property grab in this case and try and get as many properties as possible. But it doesn't matter how many properties we have. It's about how much money each of them are making us. And it's common sense, but it's not usually stated that way. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. And also your very practical approach of can you beat the interest rate in what you borrow? Uh, That's really all it boils down to. You use debt to make a spread on the percentage, as you said. And uh, that's whenever you use it. You don't necessarily use it for the other purposes. So I think that's really interesting. So thank you for, for sharing. And then also how you underwrite properties. And you, you look at really first and foremost, the tenant. And if the, pro, if the project has a, a stability in the tenant class, then you compare it, uh, the actual cap rate on the actuals. And then you'll pay for what they did, not what they could do. So don't buy based on pro forma, but buy based on the actuals. And then you look at the expenses based on the industry average, and then you run it through your model. One, two, and five-year approaches and, and see what see what you can do with it. So I love the approach, and uh, it's kind of a fresh perspective. So I, I appreciate that. Thanks so much. And then also your case study at the very end where you bought it for 5000 a door, put about 1700 in per door, and bought and sold it later. How many years later did you sell it for 36 k a door? About two? Uh, two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. Two and a half years. So what an incredible case study for us. And, and thank you for, for sharing your advice. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, Serge. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.